0: Good evening. Uh, North Shore, I love you. I am thankful for you. I'm very glad to be here. I was just catching up on some of the previous sermons. I just listened to Harry's, and apparently he ripped off his coat and then preached without the coat. And so I thought about, I thought about doing that, but I'm not nearly as cool as Harry, so I'm going to keep my coat on. And I want to jump right into the Word with you this evening because time is always short. So as Keith said, Genesis chapter 20 tonight, if you would take out your copy of God's Word and turn in it to Genesis chapter 20. The story of Abraham continues. I hope you're familiar with it by now. God has made promises. God has made grand and glorious promises. God has not yet delivered on those promises And it has been decades at this point. Uh, Where we are now, it's been about 24 years since God came to Abraham. That's a long time. Think back to 1999. I was a pagan sophomore in high school in Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, From then to now is a very long time. 24 years is a very long time to wait. So maybe this evening there are some things that you have been waiting for for that long or maybe even longer. Maybe there are some things that you have been praying for for that long or even longer. So what do you do when God seems quite slow to perform his promises? And why is God sometimes seemingly quite slow to perform his promises? So, so why 24 years from promise to, in the next chapter, fulfillment of those promises for Abraham. I think tonight, Genesis 20 can help to give us some answers. We know that God is working always. We know that He is working purposely always. So, so what is His purpose here in this story? And, and what's the point of this story? Why are we given Genesis chapter 20? Well, big idea, quite simply. Genesis 20 is here to remind you that God preserves His promises and his people. It's going to kind of be our big idea tonight. God preserves his promises and his people. And God preserves his people through the performing of his promises. And we're going to see that he does all of that in spite of, and then sometimes actually through, great obstacles to the fulfilling of those promises. So God has made Abraham grand and glorious promises. And church, I hope that you know that God has made you grand and glorious promises. Can you trust Him to keep those promises? And what do you do when it seems like there are insurmountable obstacles to the keeping of those promises? What do you do when you are the cause of those seemingly insurmountable obstacles? Because in chapter 20, we are back to not-so-good Abraham. We are back to Abraham failing to trust the Lord. Abraham has looked pretty good these last couple of chapters. He's performed admirably. Now he fails amazingly. What's going to happen to God's promise? There's this pattern in this story that I hope that you have noticed. God promises Abraham jeopardizes the promise, and it keeps happening. And here, once again, we're going to see the promise jeopardized by Abraham's sin, but it's the very next chapter in 21 that we will finally have that promise fulfilled in spite of all of Abraham's sin. So God is going to great lengths to demonstrate not only to Abraham, but to you, his faithfulness to demonstrate to you that the fulfillment of his promises is dependent upon him and not upon you. Abraham is not the hero of this story. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at Abraham and we're going to compare and contrast him with the other major human character in the story, Abimelech, a pagan, not part of God's people. And what we're going to see is throughout this whole story, this pagan Abimelech is presented clearly as appearing more righteous than Abraham. And yet he is outside of the covenant. Abimelech is not part of God's people. He is out. Abraham is in. And so this could be a helpful study for us as I think that there is some identity confusion these days. There is some confusion about who are God's people and who are not God's people. And what is it that makes a person God's? What is it that characterizes the Christian. What's the difference between God's people and not God's people? Abimelech seems pretty good here. Abraham does not. Abimelech is not God's people. Abraham is God's people. So why is that? Well, why the difference? Well, let's read the story And see if we can figure out what's going on. Remember, God preserves his promises and his people. That's the sermon. We're going to walk through it with four points and compare and contrast these two characters to hopefully get this big idea of this chapter. Point number one, I want us to see that God's people are sometimes pretty bad. I'll repeat these as we go. But point number one is that God's people are sometimes pretty bad. But then what we're gonna see, strangely and surprisingly, after chapter 19, which we skipped, talk to your pastors, uh, pagans sometimes seem pretty good. That's gonna be point number two. Pagans actually sometimes seem pretty good. So again, what's the difference between these two groups? Point number three, we're gonna see that God promises to preserve and purify his sometimes pretty bad people. That one's a mouthful. God promises to preserve and purify his sometimes pretty bad people. The promises of God are going to be the difference. And then we're going to close with a little application and we're going to see number four, that God's promises through his people are the only hope for pagans. You have God's promises. You have the gospel. That's the only hope for anyone in this world. So can you trust God to keep His promises to you? Well, let's read the text and see. I want to read the whole thing for you. I think this is one of the stories of Abraham we're less familiar with. So let's read it. I encourage you to pay close attention. This is the most important part of the evening. And this is what God Himself wants to say to you tonight. Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. but if you do not return to her do not return her know that she shall you shall surely die you and all who are yours so abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things and the men were very much afraid then abimelech called abraham and said to him what have you done to us and how have i sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin you have done to me things that ought not to be done And Abimelech said to Abraham, "'What did you see that you did this thing?' Abraham said, "'I did it because I thought "'there is no fear of God at all in this place, "'and they will kill me because of my wife. "'Besides, she is indeed my sister, "'the daughter of my father, "'though not the daughter of my mother, "'and she became my wife. "'And when God caused me to wander "'from my father's house, I said to her, "'This is the kindness you must do to me "'at every place to which we come. "'Say of him, he is my brother.' And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. If you would bow with me, let's first pray. Let's ask for God's help in this time. Father, we thank you for your word. We Thank you for this evening and the privilege that it is to gather together as your people to worship you. Father, how good it is to sing your praises uh, together with your people. Father, I pray now that you would help both the preaching of your word and both the hearing of your word. Father, we are tired. We are often distracted. We are full of delicious food. Father, it is easy for minds to wander. It is easy to check out. Father, I pray that we would believe that your word is living and active pray that you, we would believe that you promised to work through your word. And so we ask that your spirit would do that very thing tonight. Father, please work through your word on our hearts. Comfort and encourage us. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Most importantly, Father, we ask if there is anyone in here who does not know you, that you would work to show them their sin and to show them the salvation that is to be found only in Christ alone. Father, I cannot do this. Father, I cannot accomplish anything of eternal value in this time, but you can. And so we ask you to work now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Point number one, God's people are sometimes pretty bad. We start with Abraham, who is God's man. He's standing in. He's representing us, God's uh, people. So how is Abraham portrayed here? Pretty clearly, not so good. And remember, this is the second time we see Abraham doing this exact thing. Same not so good thing. Back in chapter 12, Abraham heads down to Egypt. He tells his wife in verse 11 that her beauty is risky for him because other men will want her. The ancients, unlike us, actually understood that adultery was a terrible sin, a crime. And so they would rather murder a guy so that they wouldn't take someone's wife and commit adultery. And so Abraham knows this. He tells Sarah, hey, say that you're my sister so that he won't get killed for her. Pharaoh then hears of Sarah's beauty, takes her into his harem, and he rewards Abraham richly. God afflicted Pharaoh with some sort of plague. Then we see the pagan rebuking the Christian. What is this you have done to me? Sarah's restored to Abraham, and they're, they're sent away out of Egypt. And now, 20-some years later, here we are again. And the stories are so similar, 12 and 20, and there's actually another one to come in chapter 26 when Isaac stupidly does the same thing, like father, like son, but the stories are so similar that critical scholars argue that this must be some sort of editorial error. It must just be the same story mistakenly included multiple times. There's no way Abraham would have done the same stupid, sinful thing twice. Ha! Such scholars do not understand human nature very well. Such scholars do not understand sin very well. So let's make sure we do not make that same mistake tonight. Look at verse 1. Abraham is journeying south. We do not know why. Maybe it had something to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not sure. But it's clearly a different uh, story from chapter 12. Abraham here heads not to the Egyptians, but to the Philistines. He lies again in verse 2 about his wife, saying, she is my sister. And then Abimelech, not Pharaoh, takes Sarah, who would have been about 90 years old at this time. Abimelech, we see, is the king of Gerar. There are multiple Abimelechs in Scripture. This is probably a sort of royal title, just like the word Pharaoh. Abimelech means, my father is king. And we're going to get to him in a second. But we've read the whole story, so we're going to skip some details, and I want to skip ahead to Abraham. Abimelech is rightly upset when this whole deception is exposed, and so look at verse 9. He says in verse 9, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now look at Abraham's response, verse 11 excuses I did it because I thought well there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife besides she is indeed my sister excuses Abraham lied it does not matter if he told a half truth it is the intent that matters his intent was to deceive and mislead and his intent was to do so for his own self-protection at great risk to his wife There's no defending Abraham here in my mind, though some really try. But Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Abraham gives up his wife for himself, that which was supposed to be most precious to him, that which he was supposed to most cherish and protect at all costs. At the cost of his own life, he callously gives up to another man. It's inexcusable. Calvin writes that Abraham thought nothing of Sarah's danger. He sinned through unbelief by attributing less than he ought to the providence of God. So we are warned how dangerous a thing it is to trust our own counsels. That is a great word for all of us. Be wary of trusting your own counsel. Abraham has failed here to trust God, to trust his promises, to trust his providence. He has not cared for the life of his wife. He has lied. He has misrepresented God to the watching world. And we could go on and on and on. The point is that God's people are sometimes pretty bad. Abraham has been regenerated. He has been redeemed. He is a believer, 15.6, and he believed the Lord and it count, he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteous. We're going to consider that in a moment. But here we see the righteous behaving badly. And this this is important for us to understand. Sometimes God's people, sometimes Christians, sometimes you and me do stupid, sinful things, sometimes spectacularly so. If you have a hard time with that idea, just consider David, the man after God's own heart. Adultery, murder, terrible father. Just consider Peter denying the Lord he loved, then being graciously restored, then again denying the Lord that he loved and the gospel that he loved and refusing to dine with Gentiles. Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. You probably know Romans 7.15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Paul, the greatest theologian to have ever lived, he too was apparently sometimes pretty bad. And I'm highlighting this first because it's true and it's it's biblical and we have all of us experienced it. Expectations are very important. You need to be told what the Christian life is like and the battle that it is so that you will be ready for it and not shocked and confused when you sin and struggle. And second, I think this is important because there's some confusion about this. I think there is some confusion about what it really means to be a Christian and what determines whether one is or not. Christianity is not morality. It is not social activism. A Christian is not someone who is pretty good and does some nice things sometimes. A Christian is someone who was dead in their trespasses and sins, but has been made alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. A Christian is one who has been born again, regenerated and indwelt by God himself through the Holy Spirit. A Christian is one who then sees and hates their sin, turns from the sin, That's repentance and believes and clings to Christ. That's faith. And yet, who even after doing so remains a sinner because it is not their goodness or their morality that saves them. And since it is God who saves us and God's goal is to save us entirely, which means to totally transform us and to make us like Christ, Perfectly righteous, that then means that there are going to be times when God ordains and allows our sin to be exposed. Because you, there's a lot of it in my heart, and there's a lot of it in your heart. Those hearts that are deceitful above all else. We are far more sinful than we know. God knows and he loves us so much more than we know, so much that he is going to do something about the sin that remains, that sin that is so bad. And so he lets it out. He reveals it so that he can deal with it. He exposes it so that we can be exposed to our own wretchedness and utter neediness so that we will then turn to and cling to him all the more. In Abraham, we see very clearly the truth that we have all experienced, that sometimes Christians are pretty bad. Now, point number two, because I think this one's interesting. Pagans sometimes seem pretty good. Let's consider Abimelech. He looks pretty good. Doesn't start off so good. He takes Sarah uh, for his wife in verse 2, but this was tragically normal king behavior back then. Now look at verse 3. I love verse 3. God speaks to Abimelech in a dream. Now, side note, this is actually a rare occurrence in Scripture. There are only a handful of dreams, maybe 21 in all of the 1,189 chapters of the Bible. Most of them are very early before we have any sort of written-down word. And actually, in Scripture, God speaks more to pagans through dreams than He does His people, which is interesting. I would like to talk to you more about that, but I don't have enough time to do that. Either way, this dream thing doesn't happen a lot, even in Scripture. It is not the norm. Your dreams are just dreams. That's all I want to say. But God comes to this pagan king in a dream... And God speaks to him. And look at what God says. This is wonderful. Behold, you are a dead man. Maybe we should incorporate that into our evangelistic strategy. (laughs) But what a great opening. And what a biblically true statement. Romans 6.23, For we know that the wages of sin is death, combined with 3.23, for we know that all have sinned, and so, actually, that means that this declaration, Behold, you are a dead man, is ultimately true of everyone. Everyone. I was thinking about this yesterday, and I had to ride the train, which I never ride the train, and I'm thankful for that. I hate the train. But I had to ride the train, and I had this on my brain, and I was thinking about it. Every single person on this cart, apart from Christ, is spiritually dead. Everyone you pass on the street... Every coworker sitting around you, every family member, everyone in this room, apart from Christ, is a dead man. The gospel, the good news that there is forgiveness and life offered in Christ only makes sense. It's only actually good news if we first understand that we are dead and that all sin deserves death. That we were all of us dead in those trespasses and sins. Listen, do you look at the people around you in this light. I think we have largely lost this conviction today. I think we struggle with point four. We're going to talk a little bit about evangelism and mission for a second. I think we struggle with that in part because we don't quite appreciate this first. We may have a tendency to look around at all the people uh, and think of them, hey, you know, they're pretty decent people for the most part. They're taking stands for justice. They're doing all of these good things. They seem pretty nice. Pagans sometimes seem pretty good. That could actually be a really bad spot for us to be, and for them uh, to be in. Because we have to start with this. God comes to this man who seems like a really decent guy, who is the more righteous one uh, in appearance in this story, and God says to him, behold, pagan, you are a dead man on account of the woman that you have taken. So again, those are God's words. Abimelech would rightly deserve death for the sin of adultery. Again, no one believes that today. No one believes adultery is even a sin today. But it, like all sin not dealt with, is deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. But Abimelech protests. Look at verse four. Abimelech has not touched Sarah. And so he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? stop there two interesting things to note he doesn't say will you kill me will you kill an innocent person singular right he is the one who would have sinned but it says innocent people plural and it's even more interesting if you're following along in the king james the king james says will you kill, kill and this is actually more accurate a righteous nation the word the esv translates innocent is actually the hebrew word for righteous And the word that the ESV translates people is the Hebrew word for nations. It's the same word back in 1818 where God says that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. So we're seeing here some sort of principle of representation. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And second, this chapter has something to do with Abraham's relationship with the nation's. We just saw that in the last chapter as well, as God wipes out a nation in His just judgment. Parker walked you last week through the discussion of God's justice before Sodom was destroyed, indicating that its destruction was just. And here we see Abimelech also talking about justice. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And in verse 5, Abimelech rightly points out Abraham's deception. He told me she was his sister. And he says, In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Those are pretty strong words. Innocence, actually righteousness. Integrity, innocence. Maybe still he's just like Abraham. Maybe he too is just lying. Nope. Look at verse 6. God affirms Abimelech's affirmation. Yes. I know that you have done this and in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God then commands Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham, warns him that if he does not, he shall surely die. And where we just saw Abraham respond badly with the making of excuses and a failure to own up to his sin, look at Abimelech's response, verse 8. He immediately gathers everyone, he shares what God has said, and they are very much afraid. That's ironic. It's the same word we see in verse 11 when Abraham claims that there's no fear of God in this place. Here they are afraid. The great irony of Abraham's statement is that it is actually he who is the one fearing man rather than God. So verse 9, Abimelech calls to Abraham and says, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Again, what a line. Yeah, it's the pagan rebuking the patriarch. And Abraham goes on to make his excuses. He doesn't own up. He doesn't repent. Abimelech's response, verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants, gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So he gives Abraham this huge sum of money. He invites him to stay in the land. He affirms Sarah's innocence in the whole affair to vindicate her and justify her in the eyes of others. Abimelech seems pretty good. Sometimes pagans seem pretty good. If you were to remove verses 7 and 17 and 18, in other words, if you were to remove what God says about Abraham and what God does on behalf of Abraham out of this story and just looked at the remaining 15 verses, which of these men would you assume was God's man? Abimelech. I think if we're being honest, we'd all say, oh, it's, it must be Abimelech. Abimelech looks pretty good. Abraham looks pretty bad. And thus, when our basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian is little more than morality, little more than looking pretty good and being nice, then we're going to have all kinds of problems. We are conversion confused. We are confused about what it means to be a Christian and what makes one a Christian. Abimelech looks better than Abraham in this story. And listen, this is sometimes going to be the case. Pagans can do all kinds of relatively good things. They can feed the poor. They can adopt orphan children. They can be civil rights activists. Pagans can do good rightly understood. We need to be able to affirm this goodness, but rightly define this goodness. Because we have to understand whatever this is that's happening here, whatever this goodness is in light of Romans 3.12, no one does good. Or Jesus' words in Mark 10.18, no one is good except God alone. Calvin helpfully breaks it down like this. He says that we must keep in mind and set forth a distinction between earthly things and heavenly things. And Calvin goes on to say that he calls earthly things, those which do not pertain to God or His kingdom, to true justice or to the blessedness of the future life, but which have their significance and relationship with regard only to the present life. And he calls heavenly things the pure knowledge of God, the nature of true justice and righteousness and the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom. So in earthly things, pagans can do all kinds of good. In heavenly things, pagans can do none. Because Romans 14:23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Uh, many try and limit that verse. Augustine says it cannot be done. It has to apply universally. All that is not of faith is ultimately sin. That's why Augustine called pagan virtues, the the good that pagans sometimes do, he referred to them as splendid vices. I love that phrase, splendid vices. Because there can be no true virtue without worship of the true God. There can be no true righteousness except that which is received from the true God. Augustine says that, yeah, there, there's a sense of virtue that's employed in the service of human glory, a relative virtue, and yay, that's better than no virtue, I guess. A relative virtue that makes one somewhat less depraved, but still depraved. It's still only a relative virtue when we've got to be clear on this. When God requires real virtue. When God requires a perfect Righteousness, absolute perfect righteousness. Goodness must accord with some standard. True goodness must accord with God's standard, and God's standard is Himself and His perfection. God's standard is that goodness is not determined just by action but intent, not just by deed but the heart. An act then is only truly good if it is motivated first and foremost by a desire to please and honor and glorify the Lord. Anything else is ultimately motivated by nothing more than a desire to please and honor the self. And so those who are not God's people then are unable to do good according to this standard, true good. And thus the relative that they, good that they do is ultimately nothing more than a splendid vice since it does not and cannot proceed from faith. Thus it's ultimately sin because it is not done in reference to God and His glory, but only ultimately to self and its glory. And listen, that's what sin is. Sin is the setting of, setting aside of God and the inserting of self into his place. So yes, sometimes pagans seem pretty good if we rightly define what that good is. They can do relative, earthly good, which sure is better than no good, but it is not ultimate good, and thus it is not saving good. And thus... The pagan, in doing that good, actually does nothing for their soul. And the Puritans used to understand and teach that actually they're doing harm to their soul because it's self-righteousness and it's still sin and it's keeping them distance and separated from God. And so this good, whatever it is, does nothing to solve the problem of their separation from the God who alone is good, the God of Life. Some relative good saves no one. Earthly good saves no one. Good and nice things and acts and whatever it is saves no one. Christianity is not morality. It is not activism. Thus a Christian is not one who does pretty good and does some pretty good things. Often pagans are pretty good and do some pretty good things. Things. Listen, apart from Christ, no matter how many of those pretty good earthly things that they do, all of them will die justly condemned to suffer an eternity in hell. Again, I just I just I'm not fully convinced that I truly believe that. And I'm not convinced that we all truly believe that as well. I do are. Uh, interactions and relationships with the outside world and with non-believers in any way indicate a belief in us that everyone apart from Christ dies and goes to hell and suffers eternally for that sin. Again, yeah, do, do, do we actually really believe that? Scripture categorizes everyone into two groups: the righteous and the wicked God's people and pagan people so yes sometimes pagans seem pretty good why God's people are pretty bad but again why is that what is ultimately the difference between the two If both of them are doing some sort of earthly good at times and sometimes this one's doing more than this one what's the difference and why point number three God preserves and purifies his sometimes pretty bad people. I said a moment ago that if you remove 7 and 17 and 18, then Abimelech wins. Abimelech is better than Abraham. We cannot remove verses 7 and 17 and 18 because they are the most important part. Those are the verses in which God says something about Abraham. Those are the verses in which God does something on behalf of Abraham. And listen, that's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Not our relative goodness, but God's perfect goodness. Not our works, but God's grace. I said at the beginning of this story that the whole point was to remind and encourage God's people that he protects and preserves them. That's what he does here for Sarah. Verse 6, he does not allow her to be touched. Verse 16, she's restored and vindicated. Praise God that he protects and preserves his people better than we do. Abraham fails. God does not. Even more amazingly, God also preserves and protects Abraham even in his sin and his failure. And I want you to think about this. Did you wonder about this when we read it? Look at verse 6 again. Look, Notice what God says to the pagan, to Abimelech. I did not let you touch her. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Are you tracking with me? What, what question does that raise? What about Abraham? We've seen Abraham sin all over this passage. You have seen your sin all over your life. God kept Abimelech from sinning against him, but not Abraham, and often not us. Why? If God is perfectly good and perfectly sovereign, why does he allow ordain we're good Calvinists here we can use the word here right or even ordain his people's sin listen listen to my favorite here let me read for you John Newton for a second Um, I learned to pastor from Pastor Ed and John Newton those are like my two one still alive and one very much dead Uh, I'm I'm sad that Ed is not here that was weird but listen to what Newton says listen to what Newton says about this again why 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 does he allow the sin? It's a huge question. Here's what Newton says. How can these things be, or why does God permit them? Since he hates sin, teaches his people to hate it and cry against it, and has promised to hear our prayers, how is it that we go thus burdened? By this, God teaches us more truly to know and feel the utter depravity and corruption of our whole nature that we are indeed defiled in every part. Uh, let me pause there. Have you, have, you, have you ever experienced that? I think that's a very important thing. Have you ever felt the utter depravity and corruption of your nature? I think it's one of the clearest signs of a new heart and life. You see, oh, oh, here's, here's what I was. Here's what my sin was. Have you, have you, have you experienced that? So he does this to allow us to feel our utter depravity and Newton goes on, his method of salvation is likewise hereby exceedingly endeared to us. We see that it is and must be of grace, holy of grace, and that the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness is and must be our all in all. Listen, listen, God allows Abraham's sin because He loves Abraham. Because He is going to overrule Abraham's evil for good. He is going to allow temporary evil for ultimate good. And God does the same thing for you. God wants to show you your sin because He loves you. God will sometimes show others your sin because He loves you. Because sin is always bad for you. And sin is always misery. And since love is seeking the good of the loved, God will always seek to expose our sin, that which is bad, to bring about that which is good. And it is kind when God does this for us. He is, he is purifying us. He is weaning us off of self, and weaning us off of our love for sin. He is kindly and repeatedly reminding us of our weakness and depravity, and at the same time, he's magnifying his power and his mercy. The more I can see how sinful I actually am, the more I can see how gracious God actually is. Because I may not see the true depths of my depravity, but he does, He is the all-knowing God. We all stand naked and exposed before His sight. Every thought that you've ever had, He knows it. All the sin, He knows it. And He still loves us. And He still sends His Son to die for us. He is still faithful and kind and good to us. It's it's that fact. It's the realization of the magnitude of, of my sin, but the greater magnitude of his mercy, that's actually what slowly transforms me. It's not by focusing on my own good and trying real hard to be good. Anyone can do that. There are plenty of pagans who have done more relative good than I have, but it is seeing my lack of goodness and God's abundance of grace that fuels and fires me to seek to be truly It's His grace that makes me actually good. Unlike the pagans, I no longer have to work to establish my goodness. The difference in the Christian is that he knows he doesn't have any goodness. I have no righteousness, none myself. That's the whole point. The gospel is that God provides me the required righteousness. The perfect righteousness in His Son, Jesus Christ. The promised one. Remember, the one that all of God's promises to Abraham are ultimately about. The son, the seed of the woman who is going to come and live and die and rise again in the place of His sinful people. That's the difference between the Christian and the pagan. Between the righteous and the wicked. It's not that we are good and they are bad. All of us are bad. We just know it. By the grace of God. And so we turn and we throw ourselves on Christ by the grace of God who becomes our righteousness and our goodness. See, Christ is the difference. The grace of God is the difference. Relative goodness or righteousness doesn't matter eternally at all. You have to have perfect righteousness to be saved and you will find it only in the perfectly righteous one, Jesus Christ, who gives that perfect righteousness to all who come to him. So if you're here tonight and this is new and this is weird or you're just visiting and you have questions, uh, please come talk to me or, or talk to Keith or talk to someone around you. We'd love to talk to you about this, but if you are coming in here just assuming that you know I'm a pretty good person and I'm pretty decent, at least better than all those terrible people, Uh, out out there. You need to hear that you are dead and your trespasses and sins and that nothing that you can do can make any difference about that. It is only Christ that can save you from your sin. And so yes, sometimes Christians are pretty bad, but always Christ is perfectly good and we are in him. And again, let me emphasize that this is not an excuse for us to go on sinning by no means. We are taking a realistic look at indwelling sin so that we'll have realistic expectations, but more importantly, we are looking at the fact that God's grace is still greater than all our sin. Where, grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, not so that we can stay in our sin, but so that seeing the glory of Christ's grace, we are motivated to flee from that sin and to cling to Christ and to become more and more like him. See, it's only an understanding that you're not good that you will ever be enabled and motivated and empowered to become actually good by the grace of God. It's a lifelong process. I have a long ways to go, but it's grace from beginning to end. And he who begins the work promises, promises that he will bring it to completion. Listen, that's why Genesis 20, this more obscure story is such good news for us. Abraham does everything that he can to mess things up. He throws up all kinds of obstacles uh, to the fulfillment of God's promises and you have done the same thing. But see how God protects his people here. See how he preserves them and see how he fulfills his promises in spite of the sin and failures of his people. Ultimately, ultimately, is really good news for me because I'm really good at messing things up. Ultimately, you cannot get in the way of God's promises. You cannot do it. If you are in Christ, you cannot stop what God has promised that he is going to do for you. He is in control. He will hold you fast, as we just sang. He is working in and through all things, even the stupid sin things of his people, and so trust him he always protects and preserves his people. If you are in Christ, then that is a promise to and for you. And finally, number four, my fourth point is always very short, so you're, you're in luck. This one will be very brief. But let me read it for you and let me just apply for a second. God's promises through his people are the only hope for pagans. I want that to be clear. Abraham has been pretty bad. Abimelech has seemed pretty good, and yet verse 4, look at verse 4, look at what God calls Abraham in the midst of his sin. He says that Abraham is a prophet. That's the first use of that word in the whole Bible, and God says that of Abraham in the midst of all his foolishness here in this chapter. It means that Abraham speaks for God. Abraham speaks on behalf of God. Abraham intercedes for man before God. So, pretty good, Abimelech, your only hope is this sometimes pretty bad Abraham. Go to him that he will pray for you, and you shall live. Abimelech's hope, his life, is dependent on and mediated through Abraham. And so in verse 17, at the close of the story, we read, then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife, and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, we close this story with closed wombs opened. The very next verse, 21, one, God opens Sarah's womb. God fulfills the promise he made 24 years ago after protecting and preserving her and purifying Abraham. This passage is clearly about life and death, and life and death are entirely in God's hands. And the life and death of the world of pagans is entirely dependent on their connection to God's man, here to Abraham. Abraham is the one in the wrong yet Abimelech must still ask Abraham God's chosen instrument of salvation to intercede for him. Though Abraham had nearly brought death to Abimelech through his sin he is still God's chosen means to bring life and blessing. So here we see Abraham so imperfectly prefiguring Christ the true and better Abraham the true mediator and intercessor through whom comes life but also Importantly, here's your application. Abraham prefigures us here, the church. We are the only hope for the pagan world. Not our morality, not our activism, not our transforming the culture or ushering in the kingdom. Only Christ can do that, and he does that when he returns. That is not our job. Our relative goodness is not the hope of the world. Christ's perfect righteousness is the hope of the world that comes only by grace through faith, that perfect righteousness that is only offered in the gospel that is the power of God's salvation that God has entrusted to you, to us, to the church. And so we actually have and are the only hope of the world. And thus, church, this is how we help the world. Yes, we are sometimes pretty bad. The world sometimes seems pretty good. But the world will be no different than Sodom in chapter 19 if it does not hear the good news and by the grace of God repent and believe. The promise of God, of life for all who believe in Christ, is the world's only hope. And for whatever reason, in God's mysterious providence, he mediates that message through us, his people. So church, do what sometimes pretty bad Abraham does in verse 17. Pray. Pray for those people around you. Go back to point two and and really consider, do you actually believe that all of these people that you say that you care about and that you love, if you believe what you believe, then if they do not know Jesus Christ, then they are destined to an eternity in hell. They themselves will pay for their sin and rejection of this God that we claim to love so much. Church, why are we not talking to the people around us who are separated from Christ? It's got to at least be because in part we think, ah, you know, they're, they're pretty good. Maybe they're all right. They're not. They're not. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so, love and serve the God who has forgiven your badness and has credited to you Christ's goodness. And then love and serve the world by telling them of the God who can forgive their badness. Forgive also their relative goodness, which is nothing more than splendid vice, and then offer to them Christ's perfect goodness through the gospel. Church, that's why we're here. Let me close you in a word of prayer, and then we'll watch all the cute kids walk in. Let's let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your word. Father, it is a living and active word. It is a word that you have promised will not return to you void. So, Father, I uh, ask for you uh, to work through that word here this evening. Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that saves us both from our badness and from our own self-righteousness. Father, we thank you for entrusting to us the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Father, I pray for North Shore Baptist Church, that this would be a place and a people from which the gospel goes forth in great power and that you would use this ministry and use these individuals to to bring many from death to life. And I ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.